Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajimang and Special Guest Sean Port, Chief Investment Officer at Online Discretionary Wealth Manager Nutmeg. This week we're focusing on oil, an asset which experienced a steep fall between the middle of 2014 and the start of this year, but over the past few weeks has recovered a little. As a result, some analysts and fund managers are showing interest in the area again. Emma, why is this? Well, put quite simply, Leonora, some analysts feel that the bearishness in the oil sector has been overdone and that all oil companies have been tired of the same brush. But there are actually value opportunities out there, good companies that could recover in terms of their share price when overall the oil price goes back up. And contrarian analysts feel that the oil price is due to go back up because they feel that the companies, oil companies are doing enough to cut the production of oil and address the oversupply in the oil market. And so they feel that this is going to push prices back up over the next year or so. Okay. You also say, though, in um, this week's big theme, that there remain some risks to investing in oil and oil companies and oil funds. Um, What are these risks? That's right, because there are still serious headwinds um, facing the oil and gas industry. One of the main risks is nobody really knows what's going to happen to the oil price. Some analysts, as I've just mentioned, think that it's likely to go back up this year, but there's no guarantee of that. Other people feel that with the oversupply in the market, it's likely to actually stay lower for longer. So what's going to happen to the oil prices is a, is a risk that investors need to consider. There's also the issue of the global economy. If the global economy experiences another slowdown, that could weaken demand for oil and, and resources And that would obviously have an effect. And the other thing that investors need to be aware of is that oil companies, many of the big oil companies, took on a lot of debt during the boom times. And now that the oil price is much lower than it was, this is a real problem for some of them. And it could affect the ability of some of these companies going forward. Some of them could struggle so yeah, that's something that investors also need to be aware of. Okay, now um, if people aren't um, to dispute Bury's risks and persuade by the case for oil, how do the analysts that you interviewed suggest you get exposure to oil? Well, there are two main ways that they suggested. One, which is you know sort of most direct, is is holding equities and oil companies themselves um, through careful stock picking. But, you know, that's quite a high risk um, strategy. The other thing that our analyst suggested is um, holding funds that are invest in oil companies. And this would reduce the risk somewhat because you're getting a much broader range of exposure to lots of different companies. Okay, and if you want to see which those funds are, look at the big theme in the magazine and online. Now, Kate has also been looking at ways to invest in oil, but how to get an exposure closer exposure to the oil price than buying equities in oil companies. Kate, how can you get closer investment exposure to the oil price? I've been looking at exchange-traded commodities. So they're like exchange-traded funds, obviously, but instead of holding assets, they actually track the price of oil via futures contracts. So with a normal ETF, you would hold the assets. So you might hold gold, for example. But you can't really do that with oil because that would mean holding an you know, enormous vat of oil. <laughs> so instead you hold futures contracts and then when those expire and the payment's due, the ETF buys another one and that's kind of how it works, generally speaking. Okay, I mean, that sounds a good way for most people who 
obviously kind of a big tank of oil. But are there any pitfalls to these exchange-coded commodities or ETCs for short, as some people call them? Yeah, well, well, the downside is that there are added costs involved when you trade futures contracts or dealing in derivatives generally. Because basically, as well as the movement of the oil price, you're getting exposed to the cost of trading futures. So you're essentially buying a price for the price of oil, but also a price for what the market thinks oil will do in the future. And that's because with a futures contract, it's, it's basically an agreement to buy something in the future for a certain price. So when that contract's up and the payment's due, because you don't want to take delivery of this oil, you roll that contract, you buy a new one. Now, if the price of oil is going up, you know, that's good, your returns are going up. But that also means that the new futures contract will be more expensive and there'll be a payment, there'll be a difference in price between what you're selling and what you're buying. It sounds complicated, but it just basically means that you're taking a hit on dealing in futures while you're also making returns. So it's, it's a slight kind of cost um, which you have to consider. Okay. Now, Sean, what's your view on oil as an investment asset at the moment? Well, we've had quite a big gyration this year. We started the year at 36, went down to 27, and now we're back at 40. But I think probably we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves and thinking that the oil price is going to carry on rallying. The, the, the promised supply cuts haven't come yet. We know there's a lot of Iranian oil that's going to be coming to the market in the next two years. And really, we need to see a game changer when Saudi changes its behaviour and starts cutting oil again, cutting oil output. The Saudi over the last year is not the Saudi we've known over the last 30 years that's responded to low oil prices by cutting output. Um, so the Saudi at the moment is holding holding back and I don't think until we see that balance come back into the market lower output from crude from from OPEC do we get some balance and see prices you also bear in mind that oil is it's going through a really seasonally positive period which lasts until about late April and then typically we see uh, oil prices decline through into towards the end of the summer so oil has had quite a bit of fillips so I wouldn't get too excited I think probably 45 is the, the top end of this range we're going to see this year Okay, but should investors go back in yet? Or, um... I, I don't think so. I think investors should always think about how much oil they've got in their portfolio already. So, for example, if you own a lot of large-cap UK companies, you own the FTSE, you're going to have quite a bit of oil exposure. I think it's a good contrarian play. So if you have lots of tech in your portfolio, lots of small-cap, you probably don't have much in the way of value stocks. You don't have the watch of energy stocks. And, and the energy sector is by far the cheapest sector out there. So it's a nice contrarian play, and we've been increasing our exposure to the sector. But I wouldn't get too excited and start completely changing your portfolio and reversing. And, and looking for a big rally in, in energy producers. I think the gains to be had are from restructuring, from sort of sweating that capital base, if you like, rather than looking for a big rally in commodity prices from here. How have you been increasing your exposure to oil? Well, we've been increasing our value position in US equities. We haven't gone out directly uh, and bought energy companies, but we've actually been also increasing our exposure to the UK, the traditional FTSE 100. So we've been very light on the UK for some period, mainly in, in smaller and mid-cap stocks. We've actually been starting to go back into these big oil majors through the FTSE. So the UK tends to be a bit more of a, a low beta conservative market. And I think that's where we're, we're trying to balance our portfolios at the moment. Uh, have you done that by buying shares, funds or ETCs? Yes, we've been um, buying ETFs to, to do okay. that exposure. I think that as, as uh, Kate talked about, the main problem in, in taking a direct play on commodities and oil in particular is the futures and the roll costs. So the oil price is up 2% this year, but if you bought an oil ETP, you could have lost about 11%. So even if you had the right view on oil, you would have lost money. So I think at the moment, commodities aren't really acting to diversify. So the way to play is to buy particularly US energy sector ETF. So, for example, source ETF after a sector, oil sector majors uh, in the US, which I think is a good way to play it and not likely exposure you're going to have really in your portfolio already. 
Okay, and is that listed in London? Yes, quite, it's listed in so Sterling. So people could just go and yeah, buy it. Very buy it cost point three percent a year. It's very efficient, and I think probably a better way to play it than looking at an exchange traded commodity. Okay, some um, interesting suggestions there. Now, in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle, Kate has also been looking at the hidden charges you might incur when investing via a wealth manager or platform. Kate, you've been following this issue for a while. Has there been any improvement? I think there's been a little bit of improvement around one specific figure, which we'll come to in in a bit. But generally speaking, there hasn't been much improvement. And if anything, things look to me to be more complicated in some areas. There there are just so many different kinds of charge that you incur, whether you use um, an advisory platform or a discretionary wealth manager or you're or you're doing execution only it's it's the kind of different layers of fees that you pay that make the landscape so kind of difficult to understand or get your head around and I don't think we're seeing much improvement there really. Sean Nutmeg has put together a list of these fees hasn't yes. it so what are some examples of those and what makes them so confusing? Yeah I think that it's a myriad number we've we've sort of pulled out a list of 20 fees I think there probably are more but some of the fees that we're talking about are things like set up charges, exit fees, inactivity fee, which is probably one of my favourite bugbears. Investors should be inactive sometimes. They should think about long-term, not churn their portfolio. And actually, but you'll be charged for, for good behaviour. And yeah, um, is that quite common? Because we see that with brokers. Yes, that's relatively, that's relatively common across platforms when you're buying shares. If you don't do anything that month or that quarter, you're going to be charged a fee. So it kind of incentivizes you to actually to fiddle and uh, make some charges. Also, just straight out transaction charges. So discretionary manager, uh, often if they'll charge, uh, they'll trade on your behalf, they'll charge you a fee for, for making that trade. And obviously you don't have any control because it's discretionary mandate. So I think what really uh, we find difficult is that most fees are not in pounds and pence. So obviously when you talk about a percentage fee, people normally glaze over. But uh, when you're talking yeah. about a pounds and pence charge, £25 to be uh, to be charged when you're making a transaction, that's when customers understand it. So what we really want to see is all these charges put in pounds and pence and ideally a full breakdown, a full menu of all these charges before you engage with a discretionary manager on an ongoing basis. And I think that, that is the difficulty, isn't it? Because... And often platforms or or brokers or whoever will have some of their charges in percent and some in pounds and pence. So, you know, you might be paying a, you know, £45 a quarter fee for funds, but then you're paying a percentage fee for holding stocks and shares and it all gets quite confusing, doesn't it? And um, talking across the advisory and discretionary and exo space. But I mean, why, why do you think such little progress is being made? I think there's not too much incentive. I mean, it was a, for us, it was a big disappointment that the EU have delayed their new legislation known as MIFID II. It's very complex, but one of the good things out of MIFID II is that every uh, discretionary manager, wealth manager, is going to have to publish a full menu of their charges in pounds and pence, which is unbelievably still revolutionary. So at Nutmeg, we, we publish on our site when customers log in how much you've paid in pounds and pence. And I believe we're the only people to do that, which is, you know, in, we've been doing it for three, four years now, and that's still unique, which in my, in my view is ridiculous. Um, so putting things in pounds and pence making it really clear would really help customers make good choices i mean do you think because obviously your your business structure is slightly different isn't it because online only and um etfs only does that give you kind of an edge or make it easier for you to you know have a more straightforward fee structure than others or kind of 
brokers who have been going for a long time you have kind of all of these different mix of services and products i think for us what made it easy is we started from scratch uh, so we had a clean sheet of paper we could uh, design uh, the way we we approached uh, looking after customers money with this in mind being very transparent over fees being very clear not having anything hidden have a very simple charging structure with just one fee so rather than having 20 hidden fees we've just got one simple fee that customers are charged and you can see that all the time so for us it, the, the advantage was starting completely from scratch uh, and not having a myriad number of fee structures. For most, most wealth managers, they have trouble publishing their fees because they have so many different charges uh, and different customers are on different fee charging structures. Um, but there has been a, a tiny bit of progress, hasn't there, um, around this move from the annual management charge to the ongoing charge figure, which most people do seem to adhere to now. What, what's the change there? And do you, do you think that's a good thing that's commendable yes i think it's a good thing so you with most funds you have a management fee and then there's other costs such as custody accounting fee all the the charges that are charged to the fund structure they're not paid directly to the to wealth management the fund management business so the move to publishing ongoing costs or total expense ratio is a really good thing to do and i like the, the fact that some fund management companies are actually quoting the all-in fee as a ter or an ongoing cost and then taking their management fee out of what's left from the you know the expenses for the fund and particularly with uh, passive funds like etfs and trackers they will publish a ter and, and that will be capped at that level so i think that's a really encouraging sign ter on ongoing cost is not a perfect measure it's a better measure than just management fee i think there's some way to be going there to include other costs for example spread and turnover is not including those categories calculations but it is progress okay great so i think the advice isn't it is to is to make sure you fully looked at the list of charges and fees of whatever broker or manager you're using and just see if there's anything in there that actually hasn't been included on the the top line of the website or your statement or yes moving down the website to fees and charges and scrolling all the way down all to the, the way bottom. down <laughs> <laughs> uh, the one, one charge that we often is overlooked in these pages is foreign exchange so if you buy apple shares uh, in dollars uh, you'll get an exchange rate but actually did you know you're being charged two percent on the exchange rate um that's another one. Great. Okay. Well, yeah, we've got um, a longer list in, in the magazine, so worth taking a look. Thanks, Kate and Sean. Now, another area Kate has been looking at this week are proposals for even more changes to the pensions regime. Kate, are these major changes and could you outline what some of these are? Well, they're not major in the sense that we've, we've called this pension proposals you might have missed because I think people were expecting very radical overhauls to the pensions market in this budget, which we didn't see. But they are important changes. So a few are or involve um, the pensions dashboard, which has been mooted for a while. And um, so the Chancellor said that in 2019, he wants a new digital platform, which would show your entire pension portfolio in, in one place, which is a great idea. And I think commended by most people, whether or not this will be easy to implement and how it will work is a different thing, but but that's been mooted. And there's also changes to legislation for the seriously ill. Uh, so there's the relaxation of pension tax rules so that those who are seriously ill will be able to draw a lump sum from their pension scheme, even if uh, benefits are already being received. So that's quite important. And another thing is workplace pensions advice allowance is rising. So I think employers... Uh, generally unaware that the government's tried to encourage them to help employees obtain advice related to this by allowing a tax and national insurance free allowance of up to £150 per employee for employer arranged advice and that's going to rise to £500 per employee from April 2017. So there are a few more in there but I think those are some of the key ones. Okay now Sean do you think these changes um, could be beneficial to investors? 
I think so. Moving up the uh, the sort of allowance, if you like, for advice from one pound, one hundred and fifty pounds, which is about an hour's worth of advice to five hundred pounds, is I think significant and really helpful. The dashboard would be great. Um, it's a shame we have to wait till twenty nineteen to do that. The main issue around that is getting the data out of these uh, pension providers. Uh, we find uh, that when we're trying to transfer pensions, um, there's a lot of paperwork. Unfortunately, a lot of faxes as well shuffling around. So, to mm. moving to a digital experience <laughs> would be a massive step forward. So we we have the only o- online pension. At the moment and getting transfers across without a, a signature and lots of paperwork is, is a challenge so 2019 I think we'd like to see a bit more ambitious than that maybe 2017. You can see the full list of these uh, minor but important changes in the magazine and on the website. It just remains to thank Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Investors Chronicle, Personal Finance Writer Emma Aguman and Special Guest Sean Port, Chief Investment Officer at Online Discretionary Wealth Manager Nutmeg. You can read more about whether to invest in oil, hidden charges and what's looming on the pensions horizon in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,